right, John chapter 12, picking it up in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be drawn up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, The Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now, as before, that you would pour out your Spirit, compass about us, that we might put the thoughts and cares of this world aside for a moment, and worship you in word, in spirit, and in truth. Open up thy word unto us, that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray, Amen. Amen. Well, 
I'm going to focus on the verse where these uh, Jews come, excuse me, these Greeks come in verse 21 and say, Sir, we would see uh, Jesus. But by way of remembrance, I want us to recall from last week, the scene that was set before us was really an interesting scene in so much as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives. He was going to go in through the East Gate, just as was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, that the glory of the Lord would come from the East and enter into the East Gate. And if you're familiar with the history of Jerusalem, you'll know that that gate was blocked up and a um, cemetery was um, made on the outside of it, the um, uh, Muslims thinking that um, somehow that would prohibit Christ from coming coming in that direction. They're, they have an issue with with graveyards. But nevertheless, the Lord came in through the East Gate as it was prophesied, and um, then the gate was blocked up. No king will enter through that gate again because the king of glory himself has entered through that gate. So as the Lord moved down the mountain, we talked about the confusion that surrounded the whole incident. If you happen to be a Roman guard and uh, walking upon the uh, the wall of the city and heard this, cacophony of sounds that you would have some expectation of seeing something other than what you saw. You would certainly not expect to see people surrounding a a man riding on the colt, the foal of an ass coming down the hill while they're claiming, uh, you know, save us, Hosanna in the highest. Um, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, and blessed be the kingdom that cometh in the name of the Lord. You would really be um, taken back by the scene that is set before you. And my intention was to set it forth before us in such a peculiar manner that you would ask yourself, how could these people not see prophecy fulfilled? Well, we talked about that last week in the context of where the um, the Pharisees, um, having covetous hearts, desiring to hang on to their political position and prominence and influence with the people, uh, were blinded by all of that. Um, but yet, so were the disciples. <laughs> so we see that also there, that the disciples missed it too. All of these unmistakable signs are set right before their eyes and ears, as with respect to the prophecy of his birth. I mentioned that, you know, who was coming, uh, where he was coming, why he was coming, what he was going to do was all set before the people. But with respect to this one, also the timing uh, from the book of Daniel um, was set before them, Daniel chapter 9. So the um, envy and the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees blinded them. But what about the disciples? Uh, In verse 16 of John chapter 12 here, we read, These things understood not his disciples at the first. They didn't understand what was going on. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Um, I don't know how long you went to church before you were a Christian, but I went to church probably 35 years, with a few exception years in college, where I went to church. I was baptized as an infant, and I went to church with my folks for many years, and when they didn't go, I still went to church. And I didn't understand anything, and yet it was all set before me. So I, I share this with us, because here they are walking with Jesus for three and a half years, and they don't understand what's going on either, even though all of these peculiar signs are set before them. So I don't want to... Um, suggest that these people were any duller than anybody else because I was in the same boat. They walked with them three and a half years but had a lifetime of, uh, of teaching out of the law and did not recognize Christ when he came, even though he told them very plainly who he was, told all of the people, the nation, plainly who it was. I sat in church and it was plainly uh, told me who Christ was, but I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea the significance of it and what he had to do with me because I didn't think I was that bad of a person. In addition to that, I was offended by the uh, pastor uh, confessing the sins of the congregation every Sunday. It was part of a creed that we would read. 
uh, that we would recite. And I got to the point where I got tired of hearing that. I don't tire of it anymore because it helps me appreciate everything that Christ has done for me. Um, so here we go. Here we are. These people don't understand it, and it, the disciples don't understand it. And the Scripture tells us that they only know the things of man because they have the spirit of man in them, so that is all that they know here. So for here, the things that are playing out before them, it's just a strange procession from the disciples' perspective, just as it would be for the other people that are there as well. Um, And so even though they're in the middle of it, they're in the middle of all these crowds, it's really an external enterprise to them. They don't. They are not united with Christ, so they can't really enter into what's happening. They are physically present, and they're going through all the motions. You know, the Lord said, go get yourself, go get me an ass over here in the book of Mark. It tells where they're going to find it, that it's between two ways, and they're going to go get it, and they're supposed to bring it to them. So they're doing all of these things. They're going through the motions, physically present, but they really don't understand what's going on. Their hearts are not united with Christ. And so this is typical, I think, of many people that are in church today by way of application. There's a lot of people going to church on Sunday, very much like I did for 35 years, and they don't understand what it's all about. And there are many people that think they're united with Christ. They think they're doing the works of the Lord, but they're not. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 7, around verses 21 through 23, where the Lord will straighten them out on that terrible day of judgment um, when he says to them... Many will say to me in that day, which is verse 22 of, John, of Matthew chapter 7, he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name hath cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Think about the works that the disciples had done. Did they not do many wonderful works? Did they not cast out devils? Judas, in particular, entered into all of these things. There are lots of people in church today that think they're doing the works of the Lord. Verse 23 And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Had God not granted his grace on me, that would have been something he would have said to me, though I would have been in church my whole life because I did not have a relationship with the Lord. He had not taken out my stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. So here we have uh, these disciples um, they don't understand what's going on. They're not united with Christ. In Matthew 15, 8, the Lord's speaking, uh, quoting um, about the state of national Israel. And he says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, he's not speaking of this particular occasion. He's speaking in general, but here the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And in four days later, they're going to be all shouting as one, crucify him, let his blood be upon us. So this would certainly be a wonderful example about how people can say things with their lips, honor him with their lips, but yet their heart is from him. Um, It is not until the Lord was glorified and poured out his spirit upon the disciples that they understood the things that can only be spiritually discerned. Um, It is not until their stony hearts are replaced and they receive a heart of flesh like everybody who's been regenerated has that they might understand what Jesus is doing and what it means for him to ride down that hill, quote, having salvation, what it means for him to come as a king 
and what it means for a kingdom to come because these two things are coincidental. The king and the kingdom are coincidental and it includes all of those people that are in Christ, that are united with Christ because in Christ are all of the subjects of his kingdom. They're united with him. They're going to die with him. They're going to be buried with him in the baptism of his death. They're going to be resurrected with him and they're going to ascend up on high with him. That's what it means for his kingdom to come. All of this is happening with him. He's, he's going to um, save his people from their sins, as was written um, regarding his birth. Um, his people shall ever be a part of him and part of this kingdom. They will be living with him, they'll be ruling with him, and they'll be reigning with him. The scripture refers to the Christians as kings and priests in Christ. And we shall sit with him in his throne as he sits with his father in his father's throne. We are all united with him. And we'll get to that more when we get to John chapter 17. Now, but the disciples, they don't understand this because having not yet been regenerated, having not received the Holy Spirit, they are yet walking in the flesh and they only understand the things of man. Now, but given that they've been with Jesus three and a half years, there is some appreciation from other people's perspectives that um, they have access to Jesus, and so they must know something of Jesus. And so perhaps if you want to approach Jesus, maybe you need to approach Jesus through the disciples. And so we see that here with respect to these Greeks coming to him. And we have to appreciate what's taking place in the big picture here. So in the context of sharing the gospel. And let me just give a caveat here. People approach Jesus directly. There is one mediator between man and God, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. Um, Nobody stands between uh, Christ. We pray for people as kings and priests in Christ, but yet we would direct people directly to Jesus. We would show them Jesus as these disciples are going to do here. So in the context of sharing the gospel, what do they do? They lead these Greeks to Jesus. Verse 20 and verse 22 And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. These people are obviously proselytes. They are Greeks, so they are not Jews by birth, but they are um, uh, observing uh, the Jewish faith, so they've come to worship at the Passover. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip telleth Jesus. So we see here that though the national leadership as representatives of the nation are rejecting Jesus, we yet see that Greeks or Gentiles are seeking him out. And we can appreciate here in verse 19 that the leadership um, has an appreciation that they are impotent to stop the Gentiles from coming after Christ. In verse 19 we read, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Now, sometimes it's good to take a few steps back. We should appreciate that just as the Gospels open up with the wise men who are Gentiles seeking Christ, we're seeing here that as the Gospels close out, that the Gentiles are seeking he who is declared to be the king of Israel. We see that he's declared the king of of uh, Israel here, and we also are king of the Jews. 
And that's what the uh, wise men came seeking in the beginning. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Um, so God is superintending all events, and the Gospels are bookended with the Gentiles coming, both at the beginning of his, at, the, at his birth and then at the closing out of his ministry. So they first come to Philip, and I think we can appreciate Philip's like, well, I'm not sure how to deal with this here. So he goes to Andrew. Andrew, I don't know if he knows what to do, but together they figure out that, well, let's, let's lead him to Jesus. And we can appreciate why that might have some confusion here, because in their heads, it's just been proclaimed that he is the king of Israel. These guys are not Israelites, although they're observing the faith, but they're not Jewish. And uh, Jesus had said to them some time ago, when they, he sent them out on their first missionary journey, he said, go not in the way of the Gentiles, or into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Now, I don't think they understood what that really meant because Jesus went into Samaria, came to the woman at the well, and Jesus did um, heal uh, the woman of Sarepta. I believe she was a Gentile. Um, so what we can appreciate is that Jesus always was concerned about the children of God. In verse 52 of John chapter 11, he says, and not for that nation only with respect to who he's going to die for, but that he should gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad, the children of God. So Christ came to die for his people, and he's going to gather his children of God, the children of God that are scattered abroad, and that includes certainly um, the Gentiles. So again, um, big picture here, and these things will be brought to their remembrance after they receive the Holy Ghost here because they have in their mind this idea that they can't go into the Gentiles, they can't have anything to do with the Gentiles, and they seem to forget that Abraham was a Gentile, that when he was called, he was uh, not in circumcision. He had not been, circumc uh, been circumcised, which is the covenant that, again, separates the Jews from other people um, in the context that God is going to give them the law, and through the law, he's going to uh, manifest himself so that others might appreciate who he is and the righteousness of him and how there are certain people that are peculiar unto him and special to him. But the disciples don't understand this yet. They don't appreciate this, that it's a people that are in Christ that are the object of God's love and not a physical nation, but rather the spiritual nation of Israel. Um, so we see here that these Greeks would seek Jesus. And so by way of application to us, I ask this question. Wouldn't it be nice if someone came up to us and said, I want to see Jesus? I mean, isn't that the kind of thing we pray for? I want somebody to come up to me, and I'd love to witness to them, and I want them to say, I want to see Jesus. Now, the, the context of which this word see here is used is not in the context of somebody would answer by saying, He's over there. <laughs> Go over there. It's in the context of we really want to know who he is. We want to appreciate him um, for who he is, that we might understand um, who he is, and we want to know him. Um, and so I asked the question, well, why would anybody come up to me and ask me to see Jesus, that, that I might be able to share something with them to help them appreciate who he is? Well, before anybody would do that, they would have to know that we know Jesus. They would have to appreciate that we have some kind of a relationship with him and that we have access 
um, to Jesus. Because in the economy of our world, people of great influence, people that are popular, are surrounded by people. You can't get to them. So you need to have access to them through somebody else. So that's not true with Christ, but that's how people think. So we would certainly want them to believe that we have a relationship with Christ and have access to him, which we certainly do. Uh, bottom line is they would have to know that we're Christians. They would have to appreciate that we are Christians and have a relationship with Christ. So the next question that follows is, do our acquaintances know that we are Christians? Do they know that by either our language or our conduct, by the things that we do, by the things that we say, the, by the way we conduct and manage our lives? Um, and there's an outward component to that, and there's an inward component to it. And so I'm just, right now I'm going to mention the outward component. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the Lord says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, sometimes you've got to read that a little bit slower because there's this idea that they would see your good works and glorify you. <laughs> but that's not what it says. They would see your good works they would appreciate that you have a relationship with Christ and that you're doing things for Christ and the works that you're doing are manifest that you are a Christian and God is the one getting glorified through your good works. We know that in Ephesians 2.10 it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto God good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we want to, that they would be able to see that there's a relationship of the things that we're doing and a desire in our hearts to glorify God in those works. So the, their focus or their thoughts would be, okay, I see what they're doing, and it makes me think that there's a relationship between them and, and God. But with respect to this um, idea that they might appreciate they, that we are Christians, the more difficult one to manifest would be that they would know that we are Christians by our love, that, we, that they would know that we are Christians by our love. In John chapter 13, verse 35, the Lord is going to say this to the disciples. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. By this thing they shall know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You know, it's, it's much easier to engage in good works and fool people than it is to show love for other people and fool people. I think they can see through that, see the superficiality. They can see perhaps the narcissism in that. Um, so if it's genuine, it's clearly a fruit of the Spirit. And so the Lord uses that as a metric. He says, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples. They shall know you're my disciples um, by virtue of the love that you have one for another. So, um, in addition to these things, do people appreciate what it means to be a disciple of Christ? What would they see in us? What would they see in the way that we um, view the world? You know, we have a biblical worldview, uh, and they don't. They see things through the lens of, um, of man and through the lens in particular of late of what they're being fed from the beast. I'm speaking of the government and the government's uh, media feed. Um, the voice, the mouth of the beast. Uh, mouth was given to the beast to speak grace. Blasphemies. That's how they view the world, is through that blasphemous um, mouth. Um, I would hope that they would see a stability in our lives, that we are not fearful. And that has broad context. We just read from Psalm 91 about being fearful, fearless rather, of specific things. 
But in this political uh, climate, I would hope that they would appreciate that we are not fearful. I don't know how, um, what your response was when the World Trade Centers uh, came down um, and what things you might have said to people. Um, but I would hope that they would appreciate that you were not upset and excited about things, but that you were looking to heaven um, as God is sovereign over all affairs. So that we would not be uh, fearful. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the Lord says that we would not fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. So we would not have any fear of Satan. We would not have any fear of his agents, his ministers that uh, work in this world who can destroy the body. We know that. We see that in the book of Job where he goes out to, um, where he vexes Job, but only subject to what God will let him do. But we don't fear them. We do not fear Satan because he cannot destroy the body and soul and cast them into hell. As we'd read from Psalm 91, verses 5 and 6, it says, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. You know, I read some of these things, and I think to myself of, you know, the people in, uh, that have lived in other countries, but now, for goodness sakes, in Chicago, where you'll hear about a young child getting killed because a bullet comes through the window and, and, and kills that poor child. God is sovereign over everything. We do not have to fear that. Um, just the other day, I was speaking of a man from uh, El Salvador. He grew up there. His house was blown up by the military. And what he shared with me is stories I've heard from other people from there where they would dig a hole in their living room and that's where they would sleep because bullets would come through their house. Um, there are many people that suffer uh, fear of those things and are subject to great violence, but the Christian need not fear those things. Not that they won't come our way, but we don't need to um, fear them. We do not need to fear man. We do not need to fear, certainly, COVID. We don't need to fear cancer. We don't need to fear random acts of violence nor state-sanctioned acts of violence against us. Think about the first century Christians living under the Roman, uh, under Roman rule, how brutalized they were. What would it be like to live at that time when if you were found to be a Christian, they would take you and they would you know, feed you to a lion? You know, we as Christians do not walk through this world being fearful. We can appreciate that God has set his love upon us and none can pluck us out of his hand. Hand. Now, that's not to say we're not going to die in the flesh, of course, but that our body, excuse me, our soul and our spirit is eternally safe with him. Our eternal glory is confirmed in Christ. It's a done deal. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and verse 30, we read, For whom he did foreknow, that would be Christ, for whom Christ did foreknow from the, uh, had a relationship, that's what it means to foreknow, to have a relationship from eternity past. He also did predestinate. He's taken those same people that he had a relationship, same people that were dear to him in his heart, same people that he knew, and he has predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his son. God has predestinated them to be conformed to the image of Christ that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Here he's related to us in the context of he's our brother. We're going to be like him. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. These Greeks are here for a reason. God has called them from a great distance. They've come here to worship at the Passover. Every person in here is here because God called them. Nobody, for goodness sakes, is going to drive as far as some of the folks here drive because they want to hear me. They want to hear Christ. God has called them to hear from him. Them he also called, and whom he called, them, those same people he also justified. Now, notice the past tense in all of this here. And whom he justified, he also glorified. E-D, it's past tense. Everyone God has uh, set his love upon, he has justified, and he has glorified them. And so God here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, speaks of our glorification as an accomplished fact. And it is accomplished in Christ. And Romans chapter 4, verse 17 helps us to appreciate this. It says, God who quickeneth the dead calleth those things which be not as though they were. Why does he do that? Because it will be accomplished, that there is none that can stay the hand of the Lord. There is none that can prevent him um, from doing anything that he has uh, determined to do. It would be ridiculous to think otherwise. He is the Almighty. Now, why is all of this true and why should we rest in all of this? Because he has set his love on us and there are none that can pluck us out of his hand. None can stay the hand of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, 3 through 6, it speaks of what we would refer to as the perseverance of the saints. And we don't persevere, we are simply kept by God. That's in verse 5. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. God has prepared something for us in glory that will be there when we get there. Verse 5, speaking of these people who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And verse 6 starts off with wherein ye greatly rejoice. We should greatly rejoice in this, knowing that God has uh, preserved for us something in heaven, the glory in heaven. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to go away. It's not going to be like you didn't get there in time. It's not going to be like anybody stole it from us or took it away from us. All of the things that we worry about here and now. Will I get Social Security? I don't know. Will it be there? I don't know. When I get my fixed on my fixed income, are they going to erode the value of it through inflation? You know, these are things that we're all concerned about. But I don't worry about what's hap- what's going to uh, what's waiting for me in glory. It will be there, and I will be there too. And I greatly rejoice in this because I am kept by the power of God. I most certainly cannot keep myself, but I am kept by the power of God. So again, back to Matthew ten twenty eight, we fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but we rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And by that, we mean we reverentially, lovingly, and knowingly fear God because we know who he is and we have a relationship with him. We can appreciate all of his attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscient, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his grace, and know that he has... um, Um, set upon us his love, that he gave his son for us, and having given us his son, 
He will not withhold anything uh, from us. So we would hope that the world would see that we're not tied to any political movement with the idea that the betterment of man lies with men. It doesn't. It lies with God. You know, in Daniel, uh, it says um, three times that he puts the basis of men upon the thrones. Everybody that's in office is there because God has put them there. All principalities and powers were created by him and for him. He rules and reigns over everyone and everything. In Proverbs 21.1, we read, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. So the current president of this country, Joe Biden, his heart is in the hand of the Lord. Nancy Pelosi's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Donald Trump's hand is in the heart of the Lord. All of our political leaders in the worldwide, they're all in the hand of the Lord, and they are going to do exactly what God ordains for them to do, whether we can appreciate that or not. And we often fail to appreciate that everything that happens on this globe is works collectively for the betterment of the Christians. Everything works out for our good. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And we love the Lord, so it's all working out for our good. So as the house is burning down and the ship is sinking, it's for our good. Now, one of the things we should appreciate, this is a side note here, that the degree to which a nation prospers in terms of peaceful living is directly related to the degree that they honor and obey God. The degree to which, as a nation, we might prosper in the world and enjoy peace is directly related to the degree that we will honor and obey God. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So while we don't look for deliverance from men, from our trials and tribulations, we look to the Lord. We appreciate when the scriptures say our conversation is in heaven from whence we look for the coming of the Lord, meaning our government is in heaven, our focus is in heaven, our lives are in heaven, we are also in heaven with the Lord. The scripture says that, that we are with him. And so uh, everything in this world is temporal. The death of our bodies is simply the methodology by which the Lord um, brings us unto himself, into his eternal presence. It is something for us to look forward to and not feared. And the scripture talks about that in Hebrews chapter um, Two, I think it is, and I'm going to find that. Yes, Hebrews chapter 2, because we're going to get to that a little bit later. It talks about what the Lord has done when he overcame Satan who had the power of death. In verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, meaning Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now verse 15. And deliver them who were through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so we as Christians are not in that bondage to fear of death. It's simply the means by which the Lord will bring us to himself. It is something for us to um, look forward to. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Now, so would our neighbors look to us when they, when, would they come to us and say to us, uh, we want to see Jesus with the expectation that we would be able to share with them the person of Christ, who he is, what he is, not just some hysterical, historical sketch, but to share with them uh, 
your relationship with Christ and to present him in such a way that they would appreciate that you actually know him as opposed to knowing about him. Um, can we share with them the reality of who he is? Could we share with them his glory? Not just to what he did on the cross, which is certainly most important, and that's where the Lord's going to pick up this answer here as we continue next week, um, because we have to appreciate that his death on the cross would be meaningless absent the resurrection. If he's dead on the cross, if he's dead on the tomb, then you don't have a relationship with him. Um, but we appreciate that because of his resurrection, we know that God is satisfied with the sacrifice for sin that he has made, and we are thereby justified uh, with, the law, with the Lord. And so we would appreciate, we would need to share with them also what the Lord is doing today because of his resurrection, that he, in fact, is ruling and reigning and lives over and um, reigns over everything. He reigns over the material, as Pastor Rowan said before us, and the immaterial as well. And he uh, reigns over um, our thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows exactly what we're thinking, and he knows what our motivations are. And that all men will give account to him on that day. And so, uh, what would we share with them? Would we share these things with them? Would they walk away with an understanding and appreciation of who Christ is? And so, I'll leave us for the, uh, this question for next week. What does Jesus do here as we continue in John chapter 12? He's going to speak of his glory. And we pray that we would be able to share that uh, to other people. Amen. Amen.